Okay. Uh, hello, welcome to Friendly Anarchism. Uh, this is Catherine. Could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Kelly Kenoyer. I'm a reporter at Eugene Weekly. Yeah, you come highly recommended. <laughs> uh, so thank you for coming. I'm excited about this article you're doing. Uh, can I tell you, ask you why you're doing this article? What's it for? Yeah, um, so I feel like a lot of media has kind of put a different spin on Antifa than they might define themselves by, and I think a large part of that has to do with Antifa-labeled groups not being very willing to talk to the press, um, so it's very easy to put a negative spin on somebody who won't talk to you. Um, so I try, am trying really hard to reach out to those groups and get their take on what Antifa is, what anti-fascism is, and really clarify the differences between the terms, because I think people misunderstand that Antifa and Black Bloc are different things, that kind of thing. So I'm getting into those differences and trying to showcase who those people are in our community. Mm -hmm. um, that's awesome. I really appreciate that you are reaching out because a lot of times that doesn't happen. Um, fascists and Nazis and white supremacists tend to get a lot of platforming mm -hmm. and tend to get a lot of space in media. And part of that is, and we talk, we have a lot of internal dialogue um, in our groups and in our movement about our problems with media and how to handle that because we know that we need more media attention and we need to get our own stories out there. But it's very hard and it's very um, stressful because even when people do encounter us and work with us and do media, it often gets warped. It often gets misrepresented. It's often stories on Antifa are often badly researched or um, even by well-recognized, well-established journalists. So it, we can be very media shy because very often our words get bent to a political means or um, just disregarded in general. So it's, it's difficult, especially when we're facing a lot of political repression and state repression. Um, it's scary to think that you might say the wrong thing, mm -hmm. you know, because we are specifically targeted. Um, it's a pretty difficult, difficult space. Mm -hmm. so. It's definitely been my experience that the anti-fascist organizers I've reached out to tend to be more nervous around me than the average source. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them want to be anonymous or only use a letter or part of their name as their identifier in the, in the article. And I'm trying to respect that the most I can. Mm -hmm. um, I, I definitely understand how this fraught relationship has come to pass. Um, and I also understand why the media might be more inclined to interview fascists in those cases. Um, when I reached out to those who had been doxxed by Eugene Antifa and by Portland Antifa, they were absolutely willing to talk to me on the record using their names. So when it's easier to access them, they're more likely to get covered in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Um, and I think that's something that's become a miscommunication between Antifa and the media in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Uh, I totally see that, and we do talk about that. It's a difficult situation, um, sort of for the reasons that I was just talking about, also because fascists and Nazis... Um, and white, you know, white supremacists and the different types of um, racist, violent groups um, have state support and have sort of more political support, and so they feel more comfortable, <laughs> you know. And they're also willing to just say whatever they need to say to um, whatever the people want them to say. So they're not seem to be held to the same sort of standards of integrity as we are. Mm -hmm. uh, we get very, very closely um, sort of watched. And when we're trying to deal with media and stuff, when 
it seems like fascists can basically just say whatever they want without any of it being checked on, mm. you know? So um, it can be difficult. It's, so the reason for the masking and the not wanting to use real names and all those things is because we are targeted by both the state and by very violent, terrifying people, you know? And um, we're not, like, we're just people, you know? We're just community members. We're just, you know, receptionists and architects and these people, like, it's, it's you know, we get scared, you know? It's easy to get sort of freaked out when you're trying to just do good works in the community. You're just trying to keep people safe. You're just trying to, like, you know, even if you're doing stuff like food, not bombs, if you're even, you're just feeding people, you're trying to do like guerrilla gardening and like turn empty space into beautiful community gardens and that kind of stuff, we still get targeted mm. by very scary people. And like, considering that we are just normal folks, like I, I'm sure you can imagine that it can cause a lot of stress and it can cause a lot of like fear. You can get your name out there. Doxing is a real serious problem, mm. you know, and um, for us, people so, get, yeah. So that kind of leads me to a question. Um, if you were to get doxxed, say if your identity was to actually get out, mm -hmm. what are you worried would happen to you with regard to fascists who might be in the area? Well, they put out your address and they put out threats. And as things degenerate more, um, people knowing, if, you, if you're a political target, people know where you live, that's very dangerous. I, you know, people get followed home. People get attacked. People get, um, you know, people it, people get physically assaulted. And when you don't have the cops on your side, you don't really have anywhere else to go. So, um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and people people lose their jobs. People, they, they, you know, and it's the same. You know, it's um, it's scary. You know, we get we get mischaracterized a lot of times as. Um, having done things we haven't done, and so it's really easy to, um, I mean, there are, there are Antifa and anti-fascists that are open, and I am kind of working through that idea, like people do know in the community, because I'm not doing anything other than trying to do good works, so I'm not doing anything wrong, so I feel like it's wrong that I can't just be openly myself. Um, but it's always better with security culture to be better safe than sorry, so um, I've chosen not to use my real full name. I think it's probably not going to last. I think it's pretty inevitable that at some point, because I'm sort of sort of visible and I have a podcast and I'm, it's a small community, people know who I am. And so it's it's, I, but I might as well just sort of enjoy the anonymity as I can. Another thing about it is just a lot of us are just introverts, <laughs> you know. Like we don't we don't do this for the attention, you know. We don't do this for the name. We don't do this. For you know, for the name recognition or the stardom or the fame or whatever, we just want to get our work done. So like having our name attached to stuff can even be uncomfortable because it's like, it's so important for us that we're working in a community setting with lots of people and it's not about any single person. You know, this is why I was sort of nervous about using me on the cover. And like, I, I like that idea because I think that I look I'm a different version of Antifa than people are used to, so it might like change some paradigms. So I like that idea, you know, but it's the same sort of milieu about not using our names because it's not about us, you know, it's about, it's about the community. So um, I kind of like that we all work anonymously. There's people that I work with that I have no idea what their names are, <laughs> you know, and it's fine because it's not, it's about the work. We all focus on the work itself, you know, so 
Um, and also, you know, it's politically uh, unclear. You know, people don't like that, and people really do lose their jobs. And there's a lot of people in Antifa who are from disadvantaged communities. There's people who are illegal immigrants, not illegal immigrants, but, you know, non-documented, um, and, um, or have other reasons in, in sort of if you're in custody battles or if you're in whatever, it's something because the name has been so smeared, Antifa has been such a, like, smeared, difficult word to be attached to, especially right now. I mean, literally, the federal government considers us terrorists. Like, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. People will lose their jobs. So if you get if you get photographed or you know lose their kids or all these things just for being associated, even with the name of a group that is considered politically um, a bad thing, a politically targeted thing, you know. So like respecting people's desires to stay anonymous and not be filmed and not be um, in the media is why they wear the masks. It, there's, there's a plethora of different reasons people do that. It's not just because we're like shady folks, you know? Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So um, I guess, so you've mentioned that Antifa is misdefined. It's incorrectly defined by the media or it's mischaracterized. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me how you define Antifa or anti-fascism? Um, or anti- if there's a difference? <laughs> so there is... Antifa is short for anti-fascism, and we are anti-fascists. The word itself, Antifa, does denote um, sometimes a specific type of person that dedicates their life specifically to stopping the rise of authoritarianism and fascism. So there are like, you know, Eugene Antifa or Rose City Antifa. There are a group of people that are very dedicated and spend huge amounts of their time documenting finding out who the violent, scary people are in our communities, um, keeping track of all of the strains of different types of white supremacy and white nationalism. When I show people, I have a little card that has different symbols on it of all the different types of white supremacist groups. They're always shocked. Like People know about the swastika. They don't know about traditional workers' party. They don't necessarily know about identity Europa. Like They don't necessarily know about you know all of these different, you know, um, Vanguard America. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's hard to keep track of. And so... Um, especially when they're growing, especially when people are, you know, scared people are going to get out of prison or um, whatever. So it's a lot of work to just keep track of the growing trends and how they're all getting along and who they all are so that we know where they are and can keep people safe, you know. So, so when you say Antifa, you are probably talking, people are thinking about a specific kind of person that does that, but that's the only thing it denotes. So it can be any type of community member person doing that work. It just means that if they're Antifa, sort of, it means that they're specifically focused and they're very, very dedicated to keeping their community safe from violent, from fascists. Um, it is so anti-fascism is sort of a bigger thing because anti-fascism is anything that helps stop the rise of fascism. So I was talking in my last podcast how arts education is anti-fascism because it teaches people how to empathize and how to keep humanized, you know, how to um, express, how to express yourself so we can get out of this like violent culture, you know, so like we, we try and, and a lot of anything that's sort of like trying to combat structural violence and like sort of the violent tendencies of our society is anti-fascism because people turn to those things, you know, so anti-fascism is like a larger kind of Thing than specifically when you think of Antifa 
You know what I mean? So Antifa is usually a person, and anti-fascism is more of the concept. Yeah, ones. and then you can say anti-fascists too. Mm -hmm. So like people who are anti-fascists, and then Antifa is just short for that. But gotcha. You know what gotcha. I mean? So, but people do anti-fascist work. Mm -hmm. All different types of communities. Like I mean, it's a huge problem right now. So like community groups of all types and organizations are doing anti-fascist work, and so they are Antifa because they're anti-fascists. Um, this but, is a good time to yeah. maybe define the term fascism. Um, I think that it's something a lot of people don't understand, or they think that we finished off fascism mm -hmm. back in the 40s. Um, what is fascism? This is an interesting question, because this one gets raised a lot to sort of try and discredit anti-fascists, unfortunately, because like, the thing about the word fascism is that it's a complicated word. It's a complicated semantic word with a huge amount of history and a huge amount of variety. And so if you want to know more about like the history of that and all of the complications of that, there's Alexander Reed Ross, who's an amazing um, scholar of fascism and fascist creep. He's in Portland. He wrote a book called Against the Fascist Creep. And um, I would look into that. What we're talking about in anti-fascism, when you get down to the point, is we're talking about violent racists who advocate for genocide, who advocate for ethnic cleansing, who advocate for white ethnostates. You know, so whether or not they define themselves as fascists, whether or not semantically we want to call them fascists, um, if they, because you know, there's like some wiggle room in that word, it sort of goes aside of the point that these are violent, terrifying people that we're trying to stop <laughs> the growth of the movement um, of this nationalist, authoritarian movement that is real. That is one of the problems that people look back and they think, oh, Nazi Germany, that was so long ago, it's over. But the thing is, fascism has never left. It's always been there. It's been able to, it morphs, it changes, you know? So, mm -hmm. like, in different times and different places, it'll look kind of different. You know, and they'll have slightly different views about the difference between whether or not we should just ethnic cleanse everybody, or if we if eth if ethno states where you just have white people over here and then black people over here, whether that's preferable. So there's all these like little little varieties in, in their um, how they feel about you know what they think about these things. But when we're talking about what we do and who we find and who we are um, trying to keep people safe from, we're talking about violent white supremacists. Hmm. You know. So we know what the Nazis looked like. We know what those fascists looked like. Yeah. But and you mentioned a couple groups, so I'm wondering if you can maybe expand on this, but what does the modern American fascist look like? Again, there's a lot of different types, unfortunately. <laughs> um, there, I saw a really awesome, recently a really awesome um, little PDF, or not PDF, uh, article blog that looks like a customer got together with an anti-fascist and they drew out sort of what different groups kind of look like because they do have their own little outfits mm. you know so like identity europa are sort of the intellectual trust fund types and they'll have like white polos with a little embroidered identity europa symbol and like khakis and stuff and then there's the proud boys that are kind of more um maga hats and beer and frat boy types and then there's like just the straight up national socialist movement that wear the black regalia of like the stormtrooper black light regalia and the armbands are they um, socialists are they socialists no <laughs> no the the right always um tries to pull from the left to help legitimize themselves like the, yeah the nazis were not socialists <laughs> the nazis used 
they used, as lots of fascists do, they use populist rhetoric, you know, which is the same. So that can tie into the idea that they're socialists because they're using this like worker populist like kind of thing. But no, they're not. They're not socialists. <laughs> so you mentioned the Proud Boys too, and mm. that's kind of an interesting uh, subculture within this new white supremacist movement that we're seeing. And it kind of grew out of the internet, right? Could you talk a little bit more about that group? Um, I don't want to talk about them specifically. I'm not as well versed on that. There's different places. There's better. There's better resources than that. So um, I want to be careful about getting into all the specifics because. It does get real specific on different types. It's complicated, and I don't. I want to make sure that I'm not going to give you the wrong information because there's 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 lots of fantastic information. If you want some, mm -hmm. I can get you some. I went to the Bay Area Book Fair and to a workshop done by Rose City Antifa, and I have like six pages of notes of all of the different types, and they're like, and we're not even getting into militias. Like they were just getting like it gets crazy specific. So like. Mm -hmm. As much as I study and as much as I know, there are people who are bona fide, there are Antifa that are bona fide experts on this. And um, so if you want to know more about all those details, definitely there are people that can help you with that. Okay. So, yeah. Do you think that uh, fascism is growing in popularity since the election of Donald Trump, or do you think that its growth can be pinpointed to an earlier date, or do you have any thoughts on that timeline? So fascism is always there. Right, it, it rises sometimes and it falls sometimes. And one of the frustrations of being um, an anti-fascist and an anarchist is that we are very carefully watching these trends always, because people have been anti-fascists always and have always been tracking this. And even like 10 years ago, anti-fascists were starting to say, like, we're seeing a rise in white nationalism. We're seeing a rise in fascist activity and we need to pay attention to this and nobody did, you know? So like even that long ago, you know, and then definitely in the Obama years and stuff, like it's been, it's been around. You know, it's not that it just exploded when Trump um, became the president. It's so yeah. hard to say that. <laughs> um, or won the election, you know, but there definitely has been a huge rise because now it is socially sanctioned on like a very sort of legitimized scale. So it's definitely gotten much worse and looks like it's gonna continue to get much worse, but we're gonna keep fighting. Can you give me an example of it being legitimized? Having a president that spouts white supremacist crap, retweets white supremacist tweets, you know, like we have people in office that are openly connected to white supremacist groups. The good people on both sides quote. The good people, on, yeah, yeah, it's like, it's both sides. Both sides are violent. It's like, no, no. <laughs> like. You're, com you're comparing people, like the little compare people holding shields to stop being others from being pepper sprayed, like pushing back to make sure that people aren't getting pepper sprayed or getting punched in the face. This sort of defensive action will be compared with people who have literally, like, people who are out of jail from, like, <laughs> bombing churches and stuff. It's like, that's not the st If you look at, like, the FBI or the Homeland Security list of terrorist actions, it's, like, white supremacists, white supremacists, white nationalists, white white guys, everybody, you know what I mean? Like, we're, we're not terrorists. We're not terrorists, and they're comparing us to people who are legitimately terrorists, you know what I mean? So it's it's domestic terrorism, and um, from white white domestic terrorism is um, is really scary. <laughs> So you've kind of mentioned that street warfare image that's really big in the media, yeah. where it's like black-clad mm -hmm. people who yeah. are presumed to be Antifa fighting against people wearing KKK gear or mm -hmm. khakis and polo shirts, as <laughs> right. you mentioned. Um, so 
is black block attire that attire? Is that a symbol of Antifa or is that something else? Black block is a tactic, not a group. So what that means is it's one way of, um, it's a way of approaching protests. Um, the idea of black block, and it, there's a lot of overlap. You know, there's obviously a lot of overlap between Antifa and black block, but you're not necessarily Antifa to be black block. You're not necessarily, and there's not, not all Antifa do black block, not all Antifa even do protesting. Like they're, you know, because a lot of it is sort of just online research and a lot of it is just reading. A lot of it is just le learning the history. So there's definitely a lot of people who are anti-fascists that never go to protests, you know, that, but there's also obviously a lot of overlap in um, people who have dedicated their lives to anti-fascism and then being out there on the street. Um, so that's, and the black block, the black block thing, again, you know, it has to do with avoiding state repression and avoiding things like losing your job over trying to keep your community safe. It's also, um, it's also looks kind of scary. And that's the point because you're facing down terrifying people and you, we, we are the line between nonviolent protesters and violence. And people don't like to understand or think that they will actually be attacked by cops or by white supremacists. They will. They will be. And they are. When we're not there, it happens. You know, you look at Charlottesville, I hear lots of stories from people in Black Bloc, you know, from, um, people who did the Black Bloc protests, or even I have friends who were um, just, you know, liberals, Democrats, who were there at the, at the scene, um, saying we were so glad that Antifa were there because we didn't realize. You know, Antifa are taking punches. They're taking, um, they're taking flagpoles to their backs. They're taking, you know, they are, they're, they're standing there taking in front of people who cannot do that. You know what I mean? And they, they save lives. And part of that, so it's like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a outfit so you know who we are and you know what we do and what, why we're there. So you can say, we need help. There they are. You know what I mean? Gotcha. So, yeah. So you've mentioned that the goal of Antifa wearing black block is to protect people at those protests, but you also mentioned that there are Antifa actions that aren't even protesting at all. Could you give me an, an example of what those are? Well, you know, the, the anti-fascism is a huge field of work, you know. So if you're talking specifically about Antifa, that would be the researching. That would be just general, normal, nonviolent tactics that are well established, like pointing out who fascists are in your community and say, like, you didn't know this, but your neighbor has said that they agree with ethnic cleansing. Just so you know, just so you know, this person that you're employed has said that they want huge swaths of our population killed horribly and gassed. You should, you have the right to know that. An employer has a right to know that that's who is working with them. And people in their neighborhoods have a right to know who they're around. And like our communities have a right to know who are dangerous. You know what I mean? Like, Rose City and Tifa had been watching Josh Christian for a while. They knew about him. You know what I mean? Like, they, and like they, and that kind of information is something that the community could really use, you know, if it was sort of like understood as a resource. So, yeah, getting people fired, you know, that is a big one. That's definitely a big one. Just getting people shamed by their community. The idea is that we want this to not be socially acceptable. You know, that's how the rise of fascism works, is it becomes normal. It becomes normalized, it becomes socially acceptable, it becomes legitimized. So that's what we do. We've stopped the legitimization, we've stopped the, it becoming socially acceptable, so we say, look, you have a violent white supremacist working for you, 
that is not socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we need to make sure that that stays not socially acceptable. So that's, that's what we do. That's one, of the, that's one of the main things. I've actually seen examples of that where uh, somebody in... It's usually a small-time media organization or something like that will point out that a police officer or a firefighter said this racist thing on Facebook, and then they get fired pretty much immediately mm-hmm. after that. Um, is that kind of the goal? That's, yeah, that's the idea is to make sure that people know what's going on, you know, because this does take a lot of research. It does take a lot of time, and not everybody has that passion or has that time to do that. So it's nice to have people in the community that are dedicated to that work specifically, you know. So doxing, fighting in the streets, well, maybe not fighting, but protesting in the streets as well. Um, any other tactics that are anti-fascist that you'd like to highlight? Oh, um, just community... Uh, anti-fascism, you know, like I said, it's arts, education is, is, um, is just trying to keep our society nice. <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of anti-fascists do, um, prisoner support and writing letters to prisoners and, like, helping keep people, um, just, um, help, help people who have been caught up in the legal system for all sorts of reasons, because our, our legal system is totally messed up and like it's it's a terrible place to be so do a lot of support there um anti anarchists and anti-fascists do a lot of um food stability work so like neighborhood food systems and local food systems so that we are self-sufficient and self-reliant if our government falls apart into a fully fascist state we want to make sure that people are going to be okay and a lot of um, disaster relief. So there's a lot of Antifa will just will mobilize very quickly in disaster conditions. So when you see the hurricanes, Antifa are right there on the scene. And one of the reasons that we do it is because we are willing to risk the danger to get to people that need help immediately. A lot of times um, government organizations or something will say, this area is too dangerous to go into. But there are people trapped in there. And because of our willingness to face danger, we will go into those areas to help people. You know what I mean? So that's one of the that's one of the things that we do. Yeah, there's all there's there's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Cool. So uh-huh. like disaster rescue, you feed people, you fight fascists in the street, you point out who's in the area. Um, interesting. Yeah. So you've kind of highlighted anarchism and anti-fascist organizing, Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you're both. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me how those ideologies interact and if there's any history there? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think we're specifically anti-fascist as anarchists because we are exact opposite. We're exact opposites. So they are fully authoritarian and fully hierarchical, agree, and like... one head person and then everybody else gets smushed underneath or one group of people that are more special than everybody else and anarchists are fully non-hierarchical and believe everybody is equal so we're the exact opposite we're like natural enemies (laughs) so it's always been anarchists ever since fascism started it's always been anarchists fighting fascists um, because we just so vehemently disagree with them (laughs) And they so vehemently disagree with us because we are a threat to them. So we end up fighting them because they understand that we're a threat to them, because we understand them. We don't get tricked by their rhetoric. We don't get tricked by all of their, like, slimy crap. We don't believe any of it. So they know that we are a threat to them. Actually, Golden Dawn in Greece, you know them? No. They are a pretty horrific white nationalist party. Um, 
they've been slowly taking over. They are super anti-refugee, really anti-immigration. They're very awful. One anti uh, Golden Dawn person recently in court said the only threat to Golden Dawn is the anarchists. Hmm. And when that quote came out, we're all like, yeah, <laughs> you know it. It's true, you know. Who are your allies historically and nowadays? Oh, our allies. Um, yeah, we've, we've worked with anybody that doesn't like fascists, <laughs> which is a huge swath of different kinds of people, you know, so... Does that include people on the left and the right? Yeah, whoever. Like, one of my best friends in town is ex-U.S. Coast Guard and considers himself a Republican. And so, yeah, there's totally overlap in this, like, in the um, dislike. We don't like government. We like self-sufficiency. That's totally crosses over into sort of right-wing territory in, in our American politics, you know. So it's like, um, yeah, whoever wants to stop racism, you're our friend. That's great. <laughs> um, can you give me an idea of what actions you personally have performed that are anti-fascist? Well, education is what my focus is. It's agitate, educate, organize, right? So I do a lot of or education. I consider my podcast to be anti-fascist work because I'm teaching people about anti-fascism. And the more people that are comfortable with anti-fascism and more comfortable with Antifa and more comfortable with anarchism and anarchists, um, the, m the more community support we can get, the safer everything is. So my, my anti-fascist work is mainly in education and um, community engagement, which I really enjoy. Um, I've also done black block, you know, I've also gone to protests, you know, I have also working um, on hopefully creating right now some disaster relief systems. That's like one of those projects that's like not really started yet, but there's a lot of interest from different groups. Oh, I forgot to mention the DSA. Yeah, I totally work with them. Cool. Um, I so, talked to a lot of people at the DSA for this article, so. Yeah, they're great. They're cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they hooked me up with you, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. great. Yeah, totally. Um, that's interesting. Um, so with this education that you're trying to build on, um, mm -hmm. I wonder if you have a sense of what percentage of the community is sympathetic to anti-fascism? Oh, that's a hard question. It's, you know, no one's done a survey. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be cool. Um, I feel like the more exposure people have to anti-fascism, it, the support grows pretty quickly, which is really important because it keeps everybody safer. We do not want to be violent. We do not want to get into those situations. And the way that we keep out of that situation is making sure that we have huge amounts of community support. Oh, I write down time signatures. Sorry. Oh, okay. Um, I just wanted to check to see how we're, how we're, where we're going. Doing pretty good. Um, yeah. yeah, I write down time signatures so I can mm -hmm. track quotes. Sorry. I think it's growing. I think it's 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 growing when more people see that fascism is a real thing. <laughs> people are more like, I wonder what these anti-fascists are up to, and if they have anything interesting to interesting to say. So I think that there's growing support. I would say that probably right now, Oregon is specifically difficult. Uh, around the country, there's different. There's more acceptance over here. There's less acceptance over there. You know, it's a wide variety. Um, some places are much harder to organize as anti-fascists, and some places are, like, really great and, like, have a lot of liberal community support. Mm -hmm. um, so or Oregon is hard because Oregon has such a deeply racist past. 
So we have real, real serious racism problems, but then we also see ourselves as very liberal and progressive. So that can create this like cognitive dissonance for people where they don't want to admit that they're racist or that there is racism because we want to see ourselves as past that and we're not. So like we, it's hard to organize anti-fascism in Oregon, although um, I think it's, we're, we're working on it, you know, we're trying, so. One that's kind of funny. Actually, um, we're doing the best of ballots for Eugene Bigley's best of ballot right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the main things people write in for the best thing about Eugene is diversity, which is kind of funny because it's not a very diverse city, but they seem to think it is. Yeah, um, interesting. Huh. <laughs> um, yeah, so one thing that I've heard some advocates mention as far as anti-fascist organizing is actively protecting and lifting up those communities that fascists would like to tear down. Yes. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, we try very hard to center communities that are being targeted. Um, one of the falsehoods about anti-fascism and Antifa and anti is that we're all just white people. Um, there are a lot of white people. I mean, we're representative of the demographics of our area, right? But we do try part of anarchism and believing everybody's equal and doing all this anti-racist work is believing that we really do need to be centering people who are of marginalized communities. So yeah, um, BLM, we work, like, um, especially on the other side of the country, the lot of coalescent coalitioning with with Black Lives Matter. And um, yeah. Cool. Um, should the average citizen work to fight fascism? And if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. Please. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> how could they get involved? How can they get involved? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is just education. That's always the, the first thing to do is educate yourself. You know, pay attention to what's going on. Um, we are trying to make it easier for people to do that, to have more resources to do that. Um learning, yeah, how do you do that? Well, it's the, it's the community building stuff. If you could, one of the great things would be if we could stop being shit on, <laughs> if like we could just like, like cause demonizing anti-fascist and anti-fascism is how you get fascism. So like a great thing for community to do would be to stand up for us or to at least not demonize us or at least call people out when they say that anti-fascism and anti-fascists are bad people. That would be really, really helpful. We could use some more support in that area because a lot of people seriously do think we're terrorists, which is terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. You know, like that's, I mean, the, 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 the connotations of what that means to me and potentially in my life and my safety are very, very scary. Mm -hmm. So um, if we could just have people, an anti-fascist work would be great to just not do that. And then just catching yourself in your racism. You know, anti-fascist work and stopping white supremacy is a personal journey as well because it's in everyone's heart so especially as white people one of the best things we can do is check ourselves and understand that we grew up in a racist authoritarian society and it's in us and that doesn't mean it's our fault but we do have to continuously be checking in with ourselves and do research on um, what it means to unpack your backpack or stop being racist within yourself and also just start reading blogs and journals and articles by people of color like start steeping yourself in in the lives and understanding diversity and understanding these communities that we're trying to protect that would be hugely helpful 
You know, so there's a lot you can do on a personal level and on a community level. Again, I think um, creating autonomous, self-sustaining local systems and systems of support is really, really helpful. So those like local food systems and all of these things, because when people get scared and feel isolated, and that's when they'll turn to authoritarian ideas. So if we can get community to be strong, then we can keep people from becoming violent and scared and moving towards a fascist ideology. So I think just, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't have to be hard. Just calling people out when they hear racism. You know, like we talk a lot, people probably talk a lot about like make, like ruin Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Thanksgiving's coming up. So ruin Thanksgiving when you're racist, when your family, somebody in your family, even if you love them, says something kind of racist, tell them. You know, so like that sort of everyday fa anti-fascism is super, super important. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing that I've seen and heard a lot as a criticism of Antifa is mm -hmm. a lot of people, especially progressives in this area, say that they don't appreciate fighting violence with violence. And mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the big deterrents that they have from anti-fascist organizing. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. Well, I'm a Quaker. So I am dedicated to nonviolence, but I believe in self-defense. You know, I believe in community defense. So what that means is a lot of times people with privilege, specifically liberals and progressives, white people, are not aware of the realities of how violent our society is. You know, have never faced anything like that. So what we're just saying, we're trying to say is that people actually need to be able to defend themselves physically. You know, so people, if you've never had to defend yourself physically or you don't understand the need to do that, then self-defense can look like violence. You know what I mean? Because you punch a Nazi. <laughs> punch Nazis. And then you talk about community defense. You're talking about keeping people not socially legitimized and keeping, keeping, making racists afraid again. So there has to be consequences to telling to just walking around saying that I want to kill huge numbers of our community. There needs to be consequences to that. So some people say, oh, so like in Seattle, a guy was walking around with a full-on Nazi band with a big swastika on it, yelling at black people and like saying horrible things. And uh, somebody was like, this guy is like terrorizing this area right now and somebody went and punched him out <laughs> and you know you can say you're fighting violence with violence it's like now that guy has stopped terrorizing that area yeah and he's 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 not a nice person you know so like standing up for nazis be like don't hurt nazis it's like that guy was just making a huge number of people terrified you know what i mean it's like so i understand you know but it's scary that he got punched and that is technically violent but do you see that how that little violent act made a lot more people feel safer in their area. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So something that uh, some might reply to that with mm -hmm. is that that man has his First Amendment right to free speech. It's his right mm -hmm. to say these horrible things right. in public. Um, how would you respond to that? So I would say that hate speech is not free speech. And that people get real nervous about that. It's like, well, where do you draw the line? It's like, well, you draw the line when people are saying that they want to kill you. <laughs> that the hate speech 
actually ironically shuts down free speech because if somebody is coming in and saying scary, hateful, violent things and we want to kill you, you can't talk to somebody that wants to kill you. Like you can't, you can't talk to people, you can't talk openly around people that want you dead. So like allowing their hate speech, allowing them to be platformed shuts down the ability for the people we actually want to hear from to speak openly. You know what I mean? So, in a, so as far as hate speech, you have to understand that it's not idle. It's not just somebody saying things. It's active recruitment. So when they say this stuff, it's propaganda and active recruitment. So when we let them speak and when we let them talk and just spout what they need to spout, they are, they are spouting propaganda and they are making their movement stronger. They are showing people that they are legitimate and that their views on ethnic cleansing and horrific, horrible things are legitimate. So they're not just talking or expressing free speech. Mm. You know, so they use free speech as a way to get into society and legitimize themselves. And it's very, very dangerous. Like every time a liberal news outlet just quotes Richard Spencer without explaining who he is or what he's or giving background on what he's doing they're literally just part of the fascist propaganda machine mm -hmm. they're just doing it for him you know what I mean so like that's when we talk about like free speech is they're saying they're not just saying like having their own opinions and views they're saying they want to actively kill huge numbers of people and they want to recruit more people to do that so that's why we shut that down. Can you think of an anti-fascist organizer who has the same level platform as Richard Spencer in national media? Oh, geez. Maybe Daryl Lamont Jenkins. I haven't heard of him. No, you should look him up. He's cool. He does IDAVOX and he does the One People's Project. Um, he was involved. There's going to be a movie soon. He, I, I um, actually interviewed him on my podcast. There's going to be a movie soon because he was part of a project to help raise funds to pay for uh, an ex-white supremacist to get all of his racist tattoos removed, mm. and he's a he's a cool guy. But yeah, we don't have a lot. Mm. We don't have a lot, <laughs> and it's a problem. Yeah, and there's a number on the right: Steve Bannon, Steve Miller. Yeah, I mean they get platforms all the time. That's the other thing is like people just don't really try. I think mean, I think you've tried, which is fantastic. But a lot of times people doesn't seem like they really try. <laughs> to talk to us or see the other side. Yeah, so. I, I think a lot of times the right reaches out to the media. Mm, um, yeah. And they try and seek that platform yeah. in a lot of respects. Yeah. Um, especially you can see that with the speeches that they try and have at liberal universities and then when it gets canceled, mm -hmm. they make a big media showdown, show up on CNN. Oh, we do have scholars. There's Mark Bray. Do you know Mark Bray? No. Okay, he is. A, he wrote the Antifa Handbook recently that just came out. He goes around and does speeches, and um, Alexander Reed Ross, I don't know if he considers himself an anarchist, but he's a, he's a scholar and he definitely stands up for anarchists and for the anti-fascist movement. So, um, yeah, so let's see. Yeah, Mark Bray, Daryl Lamont Jenkins, uh... Yeah, we don't, man, there's just not that many. It's sad. Um, we do have a news site called itsgoingdown.org, mm -hmm. and they're pretty cool. They post lots of stuff, and people can post whatever, you know, they take anonymous contributions and stuff. And So the other problem, one of the sort of difficulties with being an anarchist in society is we don't care about hierarchy. So a lot of times we don't seek or even want these positions of visibility or power 
or representing other people. We don't feel comfortable with that. So it's one of, it's like a strength and a failing. Because I think it's kind of a beautiful thing that we're not interested in the show, you know? We're interested in the work. But then it is also a failing because then we're not putting ourselves out there. And it's especially hard when we do try to and then we're mischaracterized and ignored and just badly, you know? So it's like, why? You can feel like that. That's interesting. It seems to me in my discussions with people both on the left and on the far, far right when I've been working on this project that um, the right has some advantages when it comes to that hierarchical organization structure because it's a lot easier to get things done quickly in a lot of respects. Um, mm -hmm. And they tend to be able to get a stronger platform for specific people more quickly. Um, so that's something that I've kind of noticed. Can you talk about that at all? I don't know because they... We actually are very flexible because the non-hierarchical model is very flexible. So we can we can have the ability to um, mobilize very quickly. So like I said, with the disaster relief and stuff, like we are right there. And when pop-up protests and stuff, like we, we do actually organize very quickly. And as far as um, being asked, you know, being able, the authoritarian being able to do stuff, it's like. That always doesn't actually work out for them. They're having a really hard time right now because they splinter easily because they are all vying for the same power. Mm -hmm. So they kind of eat themselves, you know. So having um, these trying these consensus or these non-hierarchical models of organizing can actually be very very stable and strong. And yeah. well, we and we do have the understanding that sometimes you do need a leader and it can be and can be quicker quicker. So like for instance, different blocks like a group of people an affinity group that's going to go do black block will have like often have like a spearhead which is for that particular action so we will we can have leaders taking on roles of sort of like leaderships but they're for specific actions or they're for specific moments it's never they're going to be the same person for any length of time because power is corrupting so you know so it's like it's not like we're always never having any sort of like leadership structure or something. It's just the idea that we know that that can be really damaging. So they're created and then taken apart or they're made sure that they're very, you know, specific for a moment as opposed to um, kind of like set in stone. Gotcha. Um, I kind of want to get into the modern political sphere a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to start with, uh, do you think that the current government and administration is fascist or has fascistic tendencies. That's something that I got from an interview I did recently with somebody at the Friendly Anarchist Collective. Um, oh, the Neighborhood Anarchist Collective? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Neighbor, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> mixing them up. Um, yeah. Do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, they're definitely fascistic. Definitely. Um, people say Hitler, I say more Mussolini type demagogue. He's a demagogue, mm -hmm. straight up. They are, um, he spouts nonsense. Like we're talking about how these fascists will say whatever you need to say, this sort of populist rhetoric, or like, we're nonviolent, we're totally nice people. It's like a fascist will literally be like stabbing a Jew and be able to turn to a camera and be like, I'm just a peaceful guy. Like, <laughs> you know, and so that's the kind of thing that our, our administration right now is doing. He just lies all the time. That's a, that's a very like clear sign of a demagogue. Um, and they are... Yeah, just the, the the nationalism, the like they're just very very nationalistic. All the rhetoric against immigration and all of the things, and um, I yeah yeah. Do you think that's specific to this administration? 
I think that Trump has upped the ante into a more definitely a specifically more fascistic state. There's definitely been terrible, shady things going on in our imperialist state for a long time. You know, Obama was no angel. Like he increased the surveillance state insanely. He was, the drone program got much was terrible under him. A lot of horrible things happened with the drone program. Like he. Um, all the uh, the ICE stuff, the immigration stuff, and the the detention centers and things were very bad under Obama. So it's not like these issues are new. And he actually, Obama handed a very <laughs> handy authoritarian model over to Trump to then take on as a potentially fully fascist state. You know what I mean? So yeah, not helpful. But I would say that Trump is actually a demagogue in a way that we haven't seen before. Mm. Do you think that most of those tendencies are at the federal level? Uh, what do you, I'm not sure what you mean. Like, uh, these fascistic tendencies that you've mentioned, they've all been federal programs, ICE and the mm. drone program. And no, they're, it's an endemic thing. Like you can never sort of separate social movements from the entire social sphere of an area. So yeah, no, fascistic tendencies are definitely endemic. It's obviously the more power and money you have, the easier it is to implement these things. So like I mentioned all the big ones, but there's always... Yeah, there's, and there's fascistic tendencies throughout. It just gets worse and worse and more visible the more power and money people have. So. Hmm. so in that case, can you tell me your thoughts on, say, city of Eugene or hmm. Lake County or the state of Oregon and where their tendencies lie? Well, I think that they consider themselves primarily liberal, but um, what are your thoughts? Well, it's hard. I don't, I don't really pay attention to the electoral sphere or because there's a lot to keep up on just in anti-fascism, and I also spend a lot of my time just doing re theory and str strategic research. So if you're talking about, I mean, you know, we talk about basically f actual fascist organizers growing and sort of spreading. That's sort of, that's the, that's the thing. So we're talking about fascistic tendencies. You're going to talk about state repression also. So um, the way that the mayor, Ted Wheeler, has been dealing with the police in Portland has definitely had some real fascistic tendencies to it. Um, just increased police presence is always not great. One of the things I've seen in Eugene that I find very scary is the volunteer police force, where they just have eyes on the street. They let you know rent old people. They have cars that say police volunteers, and they drive around and like look for bad things. And I think the idea of having sort of an untrained group of people, I, you know, I don't know en enough about this to really talk about it, but the idea of a police car that has volunteer police on it, I find that very strange and concerning. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, mild concern at the moment, but I think that is sort of, you can see in that sort of a blending of when you know, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just, that's a little bit of a weird thing. And so you have to kind of watch for those, like, I would say that that is a fascistic tendency to start mixing cops and untrained people that I, we don't know who are, how they're accountable to the system into our police department. Mm -hmm. um, so I believe that program does have um, pretty intense background checks and that kind of thing. That's good. Um, and I know for a fact they don't have weapons or anything like that, mm -hmm. and they're not allowed to interfere with... Um, violent groups or anything like that. I think they pretty much are there to call the cops. Yeah. Um, but do you still think that's problematic? Well, I do need to look more into it. That's a good point. I, I think, I don't know, it's just, it's just, I have, it's just the radar where it's like, that's something I should look into more. Because that's something that 
you know, so it's like that looks like something I need to look into more. Um, are there other things that you've seen in the community that you are concerned about? Or that you well, there's the, I, you know, we really concentrate on the legitimately just openly fascist stuff. So like we're having a big identity Europa problem right now. Like that's what we're concentrating on. We concentrate on like, we're not trying to like, the fascistic tendencies when I say it's like, it is endemic throughout society. That's true. We concentrate on people that are already fully fascist. You know, that's, we're not trying to like, and, you know, so combating fully fascist people already and then doing sort of like community engagement work just to try and like keep our communities strong and centered is the focus instead of trying to like, I don't know, if people, that for me particularly, I'm not sure what other people do when they're looking around at that kind of stuff. A lot of, just making sure we're doing a lot of cop watch and that kind of thing. Gotcha. So. So you mentioned that we have a big identity era problem right now. What is that problem? What's going on? Oh, right now it's just postering. There's just been a, an uptick in the amount of postering and stickering that's around. Um, and people sort of see that as not that big a deal, but the idea is that's again normalizing these ideas. It's, it's people will see these posters and it'll start to subconsciously become a normal thing to see. So when you see an uptick in propaganda like that, um, that's a bad thing. So I'm, I'm, at this point I'm just talking about propaganda. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, where are you seeing these posters being put up? I am not tracking them. If you want to talk to Lane um, LCDN, Lane Community Defense Network, they track all of that stuff. A lot was happening around the university area mm -hmm. and sort of, yeah. When I talked to Charlie Landeros with uh, the Men's Center, the U of O Men's Center, he said that uh, it seems like the center of that organizing is the University of Oregon. Do you think that's true? Um, I couldn't say. I would talk to, if Charlie said so. He knows more about it than me. So, hmm. Have you worked with Charlie? No, I haven't. Hmm. Uh, one thing that I meant to ask earlier, but I didn't. Um, a lot of articles since Charlottesville have been saying that the alt-right has splintered a lot since Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's true? Yeah, yeah they're having some problems. <laughs> it's great. Why is that? <laughs> Because Charlottesville was a PR nightmare for them. So they are disavowing having been involved with Charlottesville and they're disavowing the leadership of the Unite the Right rally and trying to separate themselves from it. So it was a moment when they all came together and because the PR after um, Heather Heyer's death and such visible violence from them, literally torches. They're trying though, they're, they're getting it, they're trying to get their get it back together. I mean, they just had another torch rally in Charlottesville just a few days ago. It was a lot smaller though, right? It was a lot smaller, exactly, yeah. So yes, they're definitely splintering, but it doesn't mean they're done. Like, you know. One thing that I read related to that second rally is that they kept it under 50 people so they could avoid the licensing or needing to get mm -hmm. a permit. The permitting, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're trying a new model now, which just happened in Portland. So, because they're being denied permits much more, which is great. You know, we like that. <laughs> we don't want them to be able to be permitted through the state and having the state, again, it's a legitimacy thing, recognizing that they have a right to come to places with torches and spout violent rhetoric that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. So, they're doing this, like, pop-up thing now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, smaller numbers. Joey Gibson just did that in Portland. I think uh, one of the people I talked to who has been doxxed by Eugene Antifa was at that rally and he punched some protest some protesters. Um, Steve Schallenberger? Mm, yeah. You've heard of him? Mm -hmm. What have you heard about him? I don't know enough to talk about him. I don't, okay. I, yeah. 
Um, do you follow all of those um, websites that track these fascists in the community and try and keep an idea of who's around? I do. Particularly for me, I don't track that much specifically. I am looking at wider trends over the world and the nation, and I do the education and I do theory and strategy work. So I'm looking at wider trends. So for instance, I'm just talking about like looking at that they're now trying a pop-up model. That's that's sort of the thing that I do. And because we have Eugene and Tifa and we have Rosity and Tifa who do fantastic work on that sphere, so I can check in and they'll say, we're having a problem specifically with him right now, and then I'll know. Hmm. You know what I mean? So Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, are there other tendencies that you've seen other than the pop-up model? Right now? Um... Well, it's there. You have to see their propaganda now. Joy Gibson's going the whole like, we're nonviolent. We're just here. The free speech is always around, and now they're trying to say they're all peace and love, <sighs> which is annoying. <laughs> and disavowing Nazis while standing next to them, so that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to wrap up? Uh, where are we at? We're at oh, 59 minutes. Look at that. Um. Mm. Well, I just hope that, you know, I trust you as a journalist, but it is very nerve-wracking. Um, it is a little bit scary for me to hear that you're also interviewing fascists because they will, I'm worried that we're going to end up being defined by them. No, I so. only talked to two of them, and I talked to, like, nine of you guys, so. Okay, well, <laughs> that's good to hear, because it is, because we do, in the media, on a national scale, get defined by fascists all the time. So that's sort of scary. I'm probably going to quote them saying things about Antifa, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, I'm going to put it in their mouths so it's very clear who it's coming from. Okay, cool. Um, do you have any questions for me? Um, how have, what do you think about anarchists now? Going into this, what did you think? And then coming out of these, have, you, have your views changed? Uh, I didn't know a lot about anarchists. Mm -hmm. I knew that there was a significant population of them in the community and that uh, some of my coworkers have had difficulty talking to them. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't have strong opinions about them. Um, I know personally a lot of socialists, so since they have positive views of anarchists, I was pretty ambivalent about them. Mm -hmm. um, I think I understand their goals a lot more now, your, your goals. Um, one thing that uh, M mentioned when I interviewed him is that uh, I had led a story called Activism 101 with a not-so-nice tip about anarchists. It was like, <laughs> oh yeah, direct action might sound like some kind of anarchist crap, and he, he was pretty offended by that, oh, but I just no. thought it was a joke, and yeah. um, I won't make that joke again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no worries. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, okay, cool. I hope that, I just hope that people will have a more positive view of us, because we really just want to be doing good work, so that's really, we really just want to make things better. <laughs> well, well so. I'll, I'll show you guys saying that. Cool, thank you. All right. Um, great. All right. Well, it's great to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you.